0: you got your bibles there if you could open them uh, to 1 peter chapter 2 we're looking forward to evan uh, bringing us god's word this morning and so uh, it'll be up on your screen as well 1 peter chapter 2 and we're going to read from verse 4 through to verse 12 as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by god and precious to him the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.
1: Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, Great to see a buzz upstairs as well with heaps of kids and uh, lots of life around the place. So it's really, really cool. Uh, I feel like I might have even seen some visitors and so welcome to you as all newcomers. So I hope any, I don't know. It's been so on and off again hasn't it uh, since I started in January so anyway I'll have to catch up with some uh, people at the end and and make sure I say hello so my name's Evan one of the pastors here and uh, yeah it's great to be able to share God's word with you so let's pray as we do that Oh heavenly father we give you thanks for all of those times where we have uh, read your word and been impacted greatly where we have been convicted and comforted where uh, we've been encouraged to live godly lives, all these sorts of things. And we thank you that this morning we can do that together. Lord, would help us to hear your word this morning and to take it on board for our lives to be changed and shaped by your word for the better as we know that you love us and want what's best for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure most of us have been in those sorts of situations where you've, you're meeting a new group of some sort and uh, you're having to be introduced to that group, and so you've been asked the question, yeah, how do you identify yourself? What are you going to say about yourself that shows who you are? There's always, uh, well, these days, of course, one of the places we do that is on our social media profiles. If you're into that kind of thing, your, your Twitters and Facebooks and whatever else there are, the ones I don't know, um, I'm, I'm always a little too self-conscious to fill them out. Like, how do I how do i sort of define myself in a sentence in just a few words i, I never know what to say what do you put do you put your hobbies uh, uh, I, I was gonna uh, um, you know i introduced myself to my scripture my year six scripture class at tarry west this year with pictures of all the sporting teams i follow uh, could be a little limited though <laughs> maybe uh maybe a, a picture of my family uh who am i who are you you know in relation to other people uh maybe well, one of the things we probably often do is talk about our work, but then that's not all of us are always working and we'll retire and all these sorts of things. And how do you talk about yourself then? And uh, what is it that, that really defines us? Is it our tastes or interests? Uh, what can we say? How do we identify ourselves? Well, the question for us this morning, though, is, is what do we say about ourselves as, as Christians? What defines us as Christians? And we have a great text this morning that shows us how we can identify ourselves, who we are as God's people. And I hope it's a hugely encouraging text as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. I think it's a great picture of how we view ourselves. Uh, because I know that some people worry about how God views us. And we think of ourselves as kind of just one of, well, billions on this planet and very little and insignificant and sometimes perhaps we think that before God we're, we're not good enough. We, we feel this guilt about who we are. But according to God, and that's, that's what we really want to know, who are you? Who are you as a Christian? How do you think of yourself if you're a Christian now, this part of Peter's letter uses a lot of Old Testament imagery to describe how Christian, uh, who Christians really are, what our true identity is. There's so many of them, so many words you would have picked up. I'm sort of trying to summarize them into three uh, sort of categories this morning. And the first one is to talk about the way that Peter talks about us being built into the house of Jesus. We're, we're, as Christians, we're members of a spiritual house, which, well, doesn't mean that much to us at first glance, does it? Uh, well, let's let's bear a few things in mind. It's a reminder this morning that Christianity is all about Jesus. That's Peter. Peter puts that uh, front and centre of this passage. It's sort of in the middle of two sections that are quite similar in, in the way that they're structured, and it sort of highlights in the middle part uh, how important it is that we're this household, this spiritual house built on Jesus. Uh, so Christianity is is all about people who know that their lives are built on the foundation of Jesus, which sounds like a fairly simple point. Although we've all probably, at least if we haven't thought this way, known people and had conversations where people assume Christianity is just another, another way of saying trying to be a good person. Or it's a religious kind of flavour, or, or it's about being moral, or something like that. But Peter's description of Jesus here reminds us that our lives are built on Jesus as our foundation. We're included in him and what he, on his life and death and resurrection. And so look at, uh, look at verse 4. I thought this was a, just even a, a short little comment here. He says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus. And that, that's, there's so, it's a small comment, but it's, it's something helpful to notice that uh, in the Old Testament, it was only, only the temple priests, those who were specially chosen by God and set apart by God, and people like Moses, who were able to come into the presence of God. And it's a short little reminder that everybody, everybody now has the opportunity to come into the presence of God through Jesus. There's no barrier between us anymore if we choose to accept that. So who is this Jesus that we all have that opportunity to come to? Well, he's a living stone. A living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. That's in verse 4, he's referred to as that living stone. Now, he's using a metaphor uh, he, he does call it a household, but it's also one that conjures up the image of a temple. Now, that might not be a, a very, a, the, the kind of image that really resonates strongly with us these days. If I say the word temple, it'd be interesting to hear what you would say back as the first word that comes into your mind. This is what, I mean, Google associates uh, that word with these sort of ornate religious buildings, uh, and uh, there might be some of those around. But for us, that's, that's kind of what it means. That's kind of the thing it conjures up. But don't forget that the churches that Peter was originally writing to had much stronger associations with the significance of a temple. And the Jewish Christians in particular would have understood these references in the context of what an important building it was for the Jewish people living under the Old Testament. So the temple wood in Jerusalem, it would have been this huge, impressive structure. Uh, it, it would have been constructed with these magnificent stones uh, built on a, on a hill so that it's kind of very prominent. You can see it from all over the place. And I, I think some of you have even been there to see it and have, have seen even just what's remaining has stood that time. But, but more than that, because of God's holiness... It was where priests had to come and offer sacrifices on behalf of the rest of the people uh, to secure their relationship with him. The temple was this this one place where God made his presence known and where he met with his people in that sense where they could go to worship. And that was like the centre of their religious life. And that's the context that's in mind when Peter shows us that Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple. And it's not... A physical building. He calls it a spiritual house. A spiritual house made up of people. Which is why we don't have a special consecrated sort of building where it's the exclusive place we worship. We are, along with Jesus, built in this new temple together. The temple actually is the people of God built on Jesus. We have a collective identity, if you look at verse 5. We're living stones being built into this this household or this temple. And so rather than the building being the place where God dwells, the place where we worship, well, the people of God are the place where God dwells. He lives amongst his people within us, his spiritual house, and we're built up together. And verse 6 reminds us that Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple. The cornerstone was the first one uh, built uh, into the building and by other by by that cornerstone all the other stones are squared and laid according to that and so he's saying that believers are built into this house of god by trusting in jesus and they they trust jesus to square their lives according to him his character and his purposes which means that jesus is that the head of our church not any person not any priest pastor deacon or whoever else it might be any human office. There's no mediator between us and God apart from Jesus. And Jesus, of course, the Son of God, is whom we can, we can approach. And our church is marked and headed by Jesus. Now, Paul likes to, uh, sorry, Peter uh, likes to, he kind of mixes his metaphor here a bit, saying Jesus is a living stone, that the house is being built. You know, because he wants to emphasize it's not kind of like just a, a static dead structure. This is, a, this, there's a sense of life and vitality in this structure. Now, How about verse 7? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now some, now this would have been much more challenging, I suppose, even to Peter's day, because it's saying that some who thought they were building God's house, they thought they were people doing God's work, were actually the ones who faltered over Jesus. They reject him and, and falter over that. Peter himself would have heard Jesus teaching and uh, teaching of himself from Psalm 118 in his clashes with the religious leaders of his time. And we see that Jesus knew that those religious leaders, those people who thought they were building a house of God, would reject him. But that doesn't derail God's plans. God still lays him as the cornerstone and the foundation for his people. Nobody can stop that. So in other words, people of the Pharisees, uh, people like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they reject Jesus, but that can't stop God's purpose <clears throat> in building His new temple, His new house, on Jesus as the foundation and the cornerstone. In fact, it's interesting if you were to read the, the context, that one of the quotes here is from Isaiah 28. And it really, if you read that through, shows how it was always God's plan that though the people of Israel, would reject God, he would send a Messiah, a chosen one, somebody who would be able to uh, save a people for himself, the remnant of Israel, and nothing would stop that plan. Now, verse 8 is one of those verses that uh, you see pop up from time to time in the Bible that show two ideas that seem to contradict each other and they're, they're sort of difficult to get your head around. It says there's people who disobey the message, they reject Jesus, actively rejecting Jesus they're making that choice and yet God is so behind it that he can say they were destined to make that decision and you know how do you fit those two things together it's beyond my ability really to say much more I think Uh, but without people being fully responsible for their action how how could it be right to hold them accountable what need would there be for Jesus death and resurrection to be sacrificed for sin how can you say there's right and wrong if if people aren't responsible for their actions as the people were in rejecting Jesus. You'd just say, oh, well, they're they're just destined for that. But the Bible, at the same time, is very clear that God is sovereign over everything. He had a purpose in Jesus being rejected, that he could be the sacrifice for our sins and the foundation of this new spiritual household. God actively works to bring about his plans. Otherwise, how could we ever say that, We'd be confident that he can do all that he says he'll do. How can we be confident that he'd be able to keep his promises? And so these things stand in tension with one another. Simultaneously true. God planned for Jesus to be the saviour of the world, the sacrifice for sins, the sacrifice that we need to be right with him, and people make their own decisions to reject him, to kill him, to crucify him, and then uh, even in our day to reject that saviour. Now, you might wonder, as I've heard, particularly younger adults, as they go off to work and university, uh, they might have been in a context like a Christian school or a church, where where they're surrounded by people who follow Jesus, and suddenly they're out in the big world. And they think, if Jesus is so great and so important, if he's the Son of God, why am I the only one who who follows him? Why do so many people reject him? And and I'm sure Peter knew this doubt. And assured the church that it was always God's plan. That even those people who look like they were building the household of God. They they could be people who reject him. And there will always be people who reject Jesus. But we are encouraged that there will be some who do obey the message. Who do listen to Jesus and come to him. And they will be part of this spiritual structure. this, This house that God is making. Now notice, what's another thing we notice about a temple or a household? Well, you can't just have one stone. We've all, we've all seen, I'm sure, a house made of stone. And uh, th- there's many stones that all make up the one big structure. It doesn't work if there's just one stone. A house is made up of many stones built together in one design. And so what's the point Peter's making about our lives together, our identity? How does that impact the way we look in our church on how we live together as God's people? Well, we often think of church as like an event to come to on Sunday, or even perhaps like something like a club that we belong to, and we we arrange it amongst our other priorities, the other things we belong to. So uh, you know, just just another thing we go to during the week. But this would remind us that church isn't like an event you go to, like or something you go, a place you go to, like the shops or or something like that. Church actually is who we are church is who we are it's not the building it's the collective identity of god's people built together as that spiritual house if we're christians who are we we are the we are unified in christ fitting together all with a purpose within the greater structure it's really important to be reminded of this at this time i know it's difficult we've been separated for so long we've been out of the routine of meeting together like this and community life has been so disrupted there's obviously there's going to be anxiety nerves about being uh present with groups you know larger groups of people and what that might mean if you know it becomes a close contact situation and all these sorts of things i know it's difficult at at the moment but we do need to be reminded that our lives aren't just about us and our individual relationship with god we fit together we have a purpose to be together and we worship together you're part of the whole you contribute to the life of the church in important ways we can't live the christian life alone we're not meant to live the christian life to uh, alone we're meant to serve together we're meant to be served and our community life is meant to honor god in the way that we serve one another now, Jesus is also clear at this point that it's only people who relate to Jesus by faith who are part of this, this church, this, this spiritual structure. And just a reminder, you don't become a Christian you're not, you, you, by coming to, going to a certain building, by going to a church on a Sunday. No, verse 7 would tell us that these things are true only for those who believe. To you who believe, the stone is precious, the cornerstone is precious, and we're built up in him. For those who do believe, we have a new identity, a collective identity. You who are dead in sins are now a living stone built on Jesus as part of his household. Well, the second point to make and to try and bring together a whole bunch of terms that he uses uh, to describe us. Uh, He he makes heaps of uh, amazing things about us in these verses. And we have every reason, I think, to be encouraged this morning. I've just grouped them under you are chosen precious, and purposeful. How do you see yourself? God sees you as chosen, precious, and purposeful. So you can see yourself that way too. Let's just summarize all these great things that God says. So uh, look at verse 5. He says we're a holy priesthood. In verse 9, a chosen priesthood. So that's an interesting one. We're both stones in this temple, but also priests who serve within the temple. And that means we're purposeful. We have a purpose within that. Now, in the Old Testament, animals are sacrificed in the temple. But look at verse 5 again and what's sacrificed in this new one. It's our lives. As priests, what do we offer? We offer ourselves to God in service, in everything we do. Everything we do is submitted to Jesus' free service. That does pop up a number of times in the New Testament. Rather than having a separate priestly class that kind of does the worship uh, or, or does the service of God... All Christians are to be holy and set apart as priests were expected to be in the ancient world. And that's a big change from the old covenant to the new. Serving God is not reserved for the special few. But as God's people, all of us serve God in various ways. Now think about what great purpose that gives your life. That gives everything a great purpose in your life. From uh, things like changing a nappy to being with your friends, treating a patient, pulling a weed, teaching a class, going for a run, whatever it is, that that, that can be an act of worship as we direct these things to service for others and service to Jesus through that. How about that for a perspective on life? Is that how you live? Is that how you see yourself? That Everything you do can be lived with that sense of worship, that sense of, of purpose. In verses 9 and 10, Peter describes the church using the kind of language that uh, that the Old Testament uses for the people of ancient Israel. He says, if you're a Christian, you've been chosen by God, which is a very humbling reality. And as God says to uh, Israel in Deuteronomy, the early stages of Israel's communal life, he says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. It's because of God's love, because of his mercy, that you are his people, that we are his people. It's not because of anything he saw in us, and that, that is deeply humbling. And See, verse 10, though, what sets Christians apart is that they've accepted this mercy of God. We are made his people by his mercy, and we simply accept that if we're the people of God. And then we are God's special possession. If you are a Christian, you can describe yourself as God's special possession. You ultimately belong to God above anything else, and he treasures you. You're precious to him. God doesn't offer his mercy reluctantly. He doesn't kind of stay his execution and kind of remain at arm's length. Well, I won't punish you, but I'll leave you over there. He treasures you. He draws you into relationship. You are special to him. And that's true no matter what you're going through. It's an encouragement to those, particularly in Peter's time, they were going through terrible suffering and being mistreated, and it would be easy to kind of for them to think, does God really care about what's happening? And I've heard people asking those questions even lately. Well, even in those times, all the time, we are God's treasured possessions, special to Him. Your circumstances, your background, your education, jobs, hobbies, none of them ultimately identify. Uh, define who you are. In Christ, you have a new identity. You're chosen in love. You're precious to God and given a purpose in life to declare his praises, the one who brought you from darkness to life. And that means that everything we do is submitted to God and taken up as an expression of gratitude and service to others, service to God through serving others, being a priesthood, representing God to this uh, representing God God to this world, and even in our prayers, representing uh, people to God. So what we do here on a Sunday, of course, is just one part of our worship. we We have the opportunity, the purpose to worship God in all aspects of life through the week. Now, final point this morning is just a couple of verses there, in verses 11 and 12. And it's how we then see ourselves as we live in the society around us and we see here that we we're not actually ultimately at home in the surrounding culture. We don't predominantly see ourselves as Australian as New South Welshman whatever it might be. No, how does he describe us in verse 11 and 12 as foreigners and exiles. Christians are ultimately not at home in the surrounding culture. Now, a foreigner, of course, is someone who is not living in their home country. Maybe if you've traveled, you've experienced this kind of thing. Or, um, or maybe if you've come to live from overseas, you've experienced that kind of thing. An exile is someone who can't be in their home country. And that takes the reader back to another Old Testament exper- experience when Israel were, were kicked out of the land in which they lived and they had to go and live in a foreign culture and be surrounded by uh, customs and clothing and all these sorts of things where they might have felt they didn't quite uh, fit in. And if you've been overseas, as I say, you might uh, have experienced where you you sort of look around, you feel you might stand out, you might look a bit different, you might not speak the language or understand the customs, you might dress differently. And, of course, um, Jesus experienced that. He was rejected by so many uh, in the world, and so we can expect that too. We shouldn't be surprised when we're different, when we stand out, when we're treated even as foreigners. Uh, There's also this idea in verse 9 where it says that we're meant to be a holy nation. Holy means set apart, different, morally pure. Jesus grants us that identity. We're, We're meant to live according to that identity. Christians are meant to be different to those around us. So that does mean in some ways we'll be weird uh, to the to the to the people around us sometimes, now not for the sake of of being weird, but in a sense that we don't we don't always do what other people want to do or want us to do. We don't just do whatever we want to do. We don't just go along with the culture in which we live. we don't our goal is not to just fit in wherever possible. Our goal is to please God and to live as His representatives in this world that often does live so differently to the way that He wants us to live. and that will be just that will be weird to some people will stick out. Now, notice in verse 11 that there's a war going on against your soul. Now, perhaps it's not quite the war you're thinking. I know some Christians love the idea we're in a war and they kind of, some Christians feel very out of place in our culture and they've seen a culture change around them and things, standards and ideas of what's right and wrong have changed over years. The temptation can be to lash out and you've... Uh, I've seen on social media people, they get in these arguments, they try and score points against our culture, and it certainly is a culture where they see a rejection of Christ in so many ways. But have a look at what Peter says. What's this war against? Well, in verse 11, he urges them to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The battle, it's an internal battle. It's a battle against the sinful desires which war against our soul. The battle is against your own sinful desires. We we struggle to live out our lives, our identity as chosen and holy people. We need to have a plan to fight our evil desires. So often we, we want to fit in, we want to go along, we want to be comfortable, we want to do what we see other people doing. Even if it doesn't align with God's desires for us as we people, as his people. But as we fight this battle, we're ready to engage in God's world in the way that he wants us to, and that's where he moves the next. Because what is the posture that we're then to take to the world as we live as foreigners and exiles, sort of that holiness? Does that imply complete separation? Foreigners and strangers, does that kind of uh, imply we have our sort of holy huddle and we keep to ourselves and make our own little distinct communities? Well, no, the posture to take towards those on the outside of God's people is to live good lives among them. Did you notice those words? Among them. As Christians, we are different, and I'm sure many of you feel that way, but look at verse 12. We can see here that by God's grace, his common grace, not all Christian practices and values are the opposite of social expectations. When Christians live good lives, non Christians often do better understand the life, uh, sorry, yes, the life transforming power of the gospel. Non Christians will often understand the life transforming power of the gospel by our lives among them when we fight against those sinful desires of our own hearts we not only do what's good for our own soul but what is good for others to see in us whether they know it or not at the time that's our role that's our identity as God's people to demonstrate a changed life among people and to intentionally look for ways to share the message of Jesus as we do that and verse 12, I think, gives us hope that Jesus will use that. Now, this verse is kind of tricky. I mean, does it mean that, God, that people will give glory to God on the day that Jesus returns? or well, some have said maybe on the, it's, it's like God, uh, uh, on the day that they encounter the gospel, the day they encounter the gospel is when Jesus visits them. I'm not 100% sure. I've always thought it meant more that Jesus returns. There'll be some there glorifying him. They understand him for who he is because of the witness of his people. I think the implication is clear there, that by mixing uh, with Christians and seeing their lives, some will hear the message, hear the gospel, repent and believe. So we don't fit in in this world, and at the same time, some will recognize us as living a good life. And I think that dynamic's a bit like sometimes, you know, if you learn something, like you could read about riding a bike, learning how to ride a bike, or um, learning how to cook or whatever it might be you could read about learning a skill but it's when somebody demonstrates that with you when you really really learn it and that's how I think people often uh, grow and hear the gospel and accept the gospel they don't often need more information on the gospel they need to see Christians living out the implications of the gospel as they exp- as they explain it along the way And given the context above, this idea of our communal life, we shouldn't forget the power of the collective witness to the world around us. That is, that the gospel, the the good life that we're meant to express to the outside world, is often best seen as we interact with each other among people outside. We're far from a perfect community, of course, and and we always will be. But we can trust God that that he will be working among us, so that people, as we interact with one another, will wonder why we're so different. Why are we such a different community? And some will recognize that as good and want to be a part of that, which will give us opportunity to help them see the gospel, see Jesus for who he is. So if you're a Christian here this morning, have you've given thought about how you can spend time with people who don't know Jesus and introduce them to other Christians so that they can see you together living out your faith, if you're someone who knows that you belong to Jesus and that he's chosen you for a purpose, that he's chosen you to be his special possession, you know that is something so good that you want for your friends and family. We live, in a, in, we live differently in this world and we're not completely at home, but we live here so that others would see the transforming power of the gospel among this household of God. Now, this passage this morning, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 12, has so many images of that new identity that God has given us in Jesus. And they're they're there, I think, for our encouragement to persevere when times are tough. Because no matter how we feel about ourselves, how we might feel mistreated or, or different, or we might feel inadequate, that's just not how God sees us. You're his household, together, built on Jesus. You're his special possession so that your life would give him glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this new identity that you have given us in Christ. Lord, help us to be grateful, to be encouraged by the way that you see us, so that we will live such good lives in this world that others will see you and glorify you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.